Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. Once upon a time, in a different time but the same place, in fact, the dining table in the middle of Beckett Graham's House of Wood, two ladies met to talk about Marie Antoinette. Same ladies, same microphone, same computer, same table. However, several years of experience have happened since then. And ever since then, we kept saying, what are we going to do with Marie Antoinette? We would start to listen to it and it just make us cringe because we left out some stuff. We laughed a lot, mostly in inappropriate locations. We, we talked over each other, just like then. We talked over each other quite a bit. <laughs> we kept promising to talk about something later and never actually getting to it. Silly Becca and Susan, so we decided, both as a service to you, because Marie Antoinette is one of the most downloaded episodes we have. And as a service to ourselves, to keep the cringing, honestly, our shoulders are cramping. I know, it was really bad. So, I tell you what, what we're going to do here is what we call Marie Antoinette Reboot. She'd approve of that, Boots. Fashion. It's fabulous. So what we're going to do is go back in with the benefit of five years of, of work on ourselves <laughs> and on the subject, honestly, and give you a new and improved coverage of Marie Antoinette. You can thank us in an hour. Or maybe two. Maybe two. <laughs> I do have quite a few more notes than I had the original time. I know, almost twice as many. I have quite a few. Crazy. I know. On with the show. And here's your 30-second summary. A princess born with a silver spoon travels to France to marry a boy with a golden crown. She spends quite a bit of brass on jewels, then has an unfortunate meeting with a blade of steel. The end. Let's talk about Marie Antoinette, but first, let's place her into history. In 1774, England's House of Lords ruled that authors do not have perpetual copyrights on their work. There was the first sighting of Orion Nebula. Rhode Island becomes the first colony to prohibit importing slaves. The U.S. was getting geared up for a revolutionary war. The first Continental Congress convened in Philadelphia. The word liberty was first used on a flag in Massachusetts. The Minutemen organized. Apple tree distributor Johnny Appleseed and explorer Meriwether Lewis were born. And on May 10, 1774, King Louis XV of France died, leading to the 19-year-old Marie Antoinette becoming the last Queen of France. Maria Antonia Josepha Joanna was born November 2nd, 1755 in Vienna, Austria. She was the 15th of 16 children and the 11th daughter of the Holy Roman Emperor Francis I and Empress Maria Theresa. She was born into the Habsburg Empire, which stretched from modern-day France through Austria and Hungary, the Ukraine, and parts of Poland and Romania. This is not small potatoes. This dynasty is from 1278. Marie Antoinette's family had been powerful in Europe for hundreds of years, known for marrying strategically to increase their interests. In fact, it was said about them, let others wage war, you fortunate Habsburg, you marry. They're no slouch at war either, by the way. <laughs> that said. And the Habsburgs come through her mom. Technically, she had a male co-ruler, but she had had to struggle during the first part of her reign to earn respect and earn legitimacy as a ruler. As her father had had no sons, he extracted these promises from neighboring countries, like strong-armed them, because you can, mm -hmm. <laughs> into accepting her as his heir. But of course, the second he died, they all went backsies and started to carve up the edges of her kingdom. She handled her country and its affairs with such skill that by the time Marie Antoinette came along, she was a 
personage in Europe, one with whom you had to deal. Now let's talk about Papa a little bit. Um, he also came from a very powerful family in what modern-day France. They were the Lorraines, which, oh, that's a region in France. <laughs> he was nine years older, but their marriage was a political arranged marriage. It just happened to work out that it was for love. On her side. I'm not 100% sure on his side. Although, the best number of children Mm -hmm. leads me to believe that, you know, at least there was some kind of affection. Yeah, he had a lot of mistresses on the the side while actually out in the open. (laughs) Well, she never did. She never, never took another. But, uh, yeah, he was kind of a player. But he was also a Disney dad. You know, he was the happy, fun parent, or she was the more stern disciplinarian. Well, he was technically Maria Therese's co-regent, but he honestly let her wield the hammer of power. It's too bothersome. Like, (laughs) he's playtime dad, basically. Mm -hmm. But he was super, super good, like crazy good with finances. That was his big area of expertise. And he untangled all these debts and problems his wife had inherited from her father. And he really, by the time he died, left her in great shape financially. Aside from the children, his greatest contribution was really erasing all the financial problems of Austria. So they did rule together very well. You know, she did the things that she was very good at, and he did his. Yeah, and he he was kind of the PR face of the country, quite popular, quite charming. And quite male, unfortunately. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Now, let's get this out of the way now, because we really won't mention him too much further. Um, Marie Antoinette's papa died suddenly while he was out on a trip. Marie Antoinette was only nine years old. And um, upon departing, goes the old story, he got to the carriage, paused, came back to hug his small daughter, Marie Antoinette. Out of all of them, I just don't really know. Child number 15. Um, mm. Anyway, so the story goes, he came back and held her tight to him and regarded her with great sadness, as if he knew what fate had been in store for her. That's very good retrofitting of a of a story. Fair enough. I like it. I like it, too. Let's... Yeah. Let's let that... Let it ride. Let it ride. (laughs) Moving on. Let's go back a little bit in time to Marie Antoinette's birth. Maria Theresa, in labor with her 15th child, also labored at her paperwork at the same time (laughs) in bed. By 15, you know what's going to happen. And I think they come out faster, don't they? I will know. Yeah. I I only have the one. I have the three, but I can't (laughs) tell you... She had sent everyone out of the room, all the noble looky-loos that traditionally were witnesses to make sure that any baby born to the queen was, you know, hers, not a substitution. Those people had to cool their heels outside. She'd had it by then. It's breaking tradition for sure, but the reality is this baby already has four older brothers Mm -hmm. and a whole bunch of other sisters, so the subterfuge level was probably near zero on this one. All of the young archduchesses ate at the time of Marie Antoinette's birth, and their mother all carried the first name Maria to show their devotion to the Virgin Mary. Gets kind of confusing around the house. Hey, Maria, what Maria? Hey, Maria. That Maria situation was not going to be sustainable. So everyone in the family was known by their second name, which would have been Antonia, in Marie Antoinette's case, but as French was seen as the language of diplomacy, of refinement, etc. All the names were... How do I say? Frenchificated. <laughs> so Maria Antonia in the family became Antoine. Her slightly older sister Carolina became Charlotte. Of course, once these archduchesses married, whatever language their future husbands spoke in their court would determine what they were to be called. 
ultimately, similar to the way that Kate Middleton will ultimately be known as Queen Catherine, though how long has it been? Like, years, and no one in the popular press, I mean, everyone keeps trying, but no one refers to her by her actual name, the Duchess of Cambridge. No one. No. I think she'll be Kate Middleton forever. Like, Anne Boleyn is Anne Boleyn forever. Oh, that would be nice. Except for the end part. Well, (laughs) people aren't making that transition. They just are not, and it's been years. The only person that could change his name was Prince, and he didn't do it very well. Artist formerly known as... (laughs) If he had changed it to something like Dennis or something, yeah, we would all be calling him Dennis. But as he changed it to, like, some squiggle mark with a thing, honestly, he couldn't have thought it was going to take. No, no. Now, uh, Charlotte and Antonia were only about three years apart. They were very, very close at the time. And the whole family was actually, for a royal family, you think of all this inter-fighting and stuff. But they were actually very close. It was a very happy childhood for her. But now, how much attention do you think the 15th child ever gets, really? Like, who do we ask? Jackson Duggar (laughs) would be the only guy I could think of. Uh, Is the only person who might know. My guess is uh, very little. There's Uh, a painting. Um, <laughs> that depicts the royal family back when Papa was still alive. And there's about six kids that are in the foreground that you could see. And then way off in the distance, in the ether, there's the rest of the kids. Well, this is even when they just had 11 children. Right. They haven't even gotten to 16 yet. So the, the first few, they probably actually look like the people they're supposed to be. They're in full color. Mm-hmm. They're visible. And everyone else is kind of... Standing in the mist, it honestly probably didn't even stand for the portrait. Vague child one, vague child two. What is this, a female child? Very good. Child number there's three. A, and then there's a baby in it, and it's kind of like an advertising piece because it says, okay, here's this royal family that's very large, and oh, we're still creating children because here's a baby. Dang. This family was surprisingly robust child mortality-wise. 13 of the 16 children made it to adulthood. The royal family ended up with a lot of pawns to use in the chess game of allies and manipulation across. Europe. The thing about princesses, or, you know, archduchesses in this case, is that their ultimate fate is really to be a combination of hostage and ambassador. It's tricky. Right, and they, but they know their fate. I mean, they're raised. They know it. They grew up in beautiful palaces, Schönbrunn Palace in the summer, among others, Hofburg for one in the winter in the middle of Vienna. They're just beautiful. There are pictures on our Pinterest board. Of course, I've got pictures of them there. Marie Antoinette's favorite palace was Schönbrunn. She often hearkened back to her childhood in this place. Fountains and menageries and a serious lack of formality. Not compared to now. Of course, uh, no one was tromping around in their yoga pants. I'll tell you that or anything. But compared to the virginity of the other major courts of Europe, daily life among these Habsburgs was more casual than most. I think that's Papa's influence. Perhaps. For example, the children were encouraged to talk to and play with commoners. Mm-hmm. All the children had been sent out to nurse, and the families of their wet nurses, though, were considered foster siblings. And they were visited, and they were given honors and preferment by Maria Therese, and right. visited by the Empress. It was a big deal. And and that's how we're treated at our favorite Mexican restaurant, <laughs> by the way. Uh, perks and preferments. Oh, that's nice. They give you extra chips and salsa. Um, for freezies. There was also a great emphasis on merit in this court. Nobility was important, don't get me wrong, especially on formal occasions. But at the Austrian court, there was a chance to rise by your own efforts and be noticed by your own efforts, which, especially in the arts. This court was known to be great patrons of the arts. There is a famous story, in fact, 
about little Wolfgang Mozart himself, age seven, super prodigy that he was, once kissed Marie Antoinette, age seven, and asked her to marry him. Super charming story, even though some accounts dispute the truth of this little proposal, it does fit both parties' personalities. Sure, can you see them all flirting off in the distance at seven? You know, people do get married on the playground, so I love it. <laughs> so little Marie Antonia, 15th child, was not really so much under her mama's eye or honestly her mother's thumb. She was deathly afraid of mama. She often said later, and this makes sense, I suppose every time you were to see her, it wasn't mommy's home. It was more like, your mother has summoned you. <laughs> so pee your pants. Then change your clothes and go see your mother. <laughs> and smile pretty, because that's what she's expecting. If this is how Mar Maria Therese was while Papa was still alive, kind of strict and stern, after he died, she got even more so. I mean, you're already clenching when you hear her name, and then Dad dies, and oh my goodness, the control that this woman had over your life and over your emotions would have been astronomical. Antonia was given over, kind of given over to her tutor. She was a very free spirit, a very happy child. When she was doing things that she liked, she, she was she would excel at them. She did very well at embroidery, at playing the harp, at singing and dancing and performing. Those were things that she enjoyed doing. The academics, not so much. She she didn't really get into. I mean, there wasn't a lot presented, but. That which was that she didn't like. A lot of times, her tutors did the work for her and presented it. Well, they were and definitely afraid of Mama. They had to work with this child who did not pay attention, who did not have a huge work ethic, and who honestly did not show that much intellectual promise at all. I hate to say. So they would often, like Susan said, just write her compositions themselves a couple of blots, a little childhood writing, and pass them off as hers so they wouldn't get into trouble. No one insisted she buckle down. You know what I'm saying? Like, it was yeah. more like a whole room full of marshmallows. Well, she and Charlotte, who was just three years older than her, became as close as could be, and um, they were best friends. They were naughty to the point where at one time they had to be physically, their rooms were moved so they'd be separated from each other because there was too much naughtiness going on. Whew, all right. The court spoke a certain sort of French with a lot of Germanism, sort of the Spanglish of its day, not French French, you know, and Marie Antoinette had not been destined for the court of France. In fact, she had hardly been thought of at all in any circumstance. Um, she's too young, and what with all those sisters ahead of her? There was a disastrous series of events in which two of her sisters died unexpectedly of smallpox. First, Joanna, age 12, then Josepha, age 16, who was due to marry King Ferdinand of Naples, also 16, so that's kind of lucky. No. Yeah, <laughs> she was, was like right away, right before their marriage was supposed to happen. Well, she was seriously ready to go. Carriages packed, yeah. lists made, yeah. everything signed and sealed, and just time to deliver the bride. But Mama insisted on a prayer session in a crypt that had been recently used and uh, was not well sealed after her brother's wife had died of smallpox. And Josepha died. Now, I will tell you, Mama blamed herself the rest of her life for Josepha's death. She thought it was her fault. Now, more recent medicine has determined that that exposure is not what caused Josepha to die. She was already exposed to smallpox. Right. She would have gotten it anyway. Mm -hmm. 
But poor old Mama had to carry that around. I mean, she really thought that yeah. was her fault. Yeah. Oh, she sure. never forgave herself of that. Now, the firstborn daughter was born with a, um, a spinal or a ribcage deformity that kind of pulled her out of the trading market. One of the sisters, Christina Maria Therese Jr., should we say, <laughs> her mother's clear favorite, who shared a birthday with her mother, she was allowed to marry for love a man who did not really have a high enough rank to marry an archduchess. So Mama fixed all that up, and not only did she get to marry her choice, she got to stay in Austria near Mama and never get uprooted at all. Resentment level 10 from all the other sisters. Let me tell you that right now. Oh, yeah, that's playing favorites to the extreme. That is freaking unfair. Yeah. Wait, you're going to send me off to where? And she gets to stay here? Another one, Elizabeth, the beauty of the family, had been scarred by smallpox to the point that Maria Therese just had to pull her out of the marriage stakes entirely. Harsh. I mean, especially since, really, she had been the most beautiful one, and everyone said it, and girls sure knew it, too. That How was her thing. crushing would that be? So there's another. All of a sudden, all these all these girls that they had this big stable of are whittling down. Well, so, there, yeah, there's an uncomfortable situation here. We have to mourn our daughter and sister, of course, but the king of Naples is expecting a bride, and I do not think he cares a whole lot which Chesapeake gets on that road. There were two daughters left available during this situation. So we're left with Amalia, who is five years older than the bridegroom in question, and Charlotte, slightly younger. Remember, Marie Antoinette's best friend and partner in crime. Well, the king was not to be fobbed off with some old broad. I, she's 22. Yeah. He's <laughs> My friend. But she's older, so. So yeah. he chose the younger option. Now, Charlotte, in the back of her mother's mind, had always been the one that was to go to France. She's intelligent. She's quick. She's confident. Always arguing with her mother. That bodes well for being an ambassador in France. Oh, sure. Uh, you know, snappy, maybe not as pretty as Elizabeth, but who is? Yeah. Maybe a little bit less pretty than Marie Antoinette, but she's the baby. It's fine. She's still very attractive. It would be a good match. Charlotte would have had the moxie to influence the mm -hmm. French people in Austrian interests. I'm presuming here, but probably Charlotte always thought she was to be the Queen of France also. It was a pretty big prize. If you had to leave home forever and live among strangers, at least... You know, that's a good position. Yeah, but no. Back to Charlotte, who at least in the back of her mind assumes she's going to France. You never know, of course, until Mama says France and Austria have been enemies for years. And they're teetering between frenemy and good relations right now. So there may be nobody from Austria marrying in. They could go with the princess from the House of Savoy or anyone else. So Versailles is glittering ahead of you like a beacon in your life. And suddenly, you're hustled off to marry a stinky, no-bath-taken, fat, horrible guy in Naples? Smell you later. And she cried. She was not happy about it for the rest of her life. And she wept. She begged. Yeah. You know, but what? This had nothing to do with her. This was alliances. This isn't personal preference land. Naples wants a princess. A princess they shall have off Vita saying goodbye. Evidently, she cried all the way there. She looked out of the window, like, leaning out at great peril of her life to see the home that she'd never see again in her life. Can you imagine? And you have a daughter yeah. about that age. Yeah. I can't imagine sending her off and never seeing her again, but that's, I'm a modern times, so. I don't yeah. even think she, like, said goodbye <laughs> at the carriage. It's like, you know, done. Write me when you get there. <laughs> but as far as Maria Teresa is concerned, you know, check. Mission accomplished. And then you turn around to survey your options. And, you know, you're at the end of the line here. Yeah, there's not really a whole lot to pick from, except... Mousetrap. Ah! Seriously? Mm -hmm. Alrighty. 
<laughs> My feet are actually up off the floor right now. <laughs> Mousetrap. Old house. Yeah. It's a fact of life. Can't rely on Henry, so we have to set the traps. It's an old house. Oh, thing. that's right. You have a cat. Yeah, we have a cat that's like, <laughs> regard. I wonder what that could be. He's not your mouser. No. I'm sorry if it grosses you out. It's just a fact no. of life. We just got to catch fact. him. It was a fact of life where I grew up. <laughs> yeah. I don't even know where we were. Okay, so here we go. Uh, okay, so she's looking it. around. Okay. You have the last daughter here to use as a pawn with France, and some attention finally had to be paid. Finally. And oh-ho, did they find out about her fraudulent education <laughs> at that point. So just I just imagined her, like, frolicking in the background, and all of a sudden Mama pointing at her and giving her that little crooked come-here finger. Mm. And, oh, busted. So what positives <laughs> do we have to work with here, thought Maria Therese. She's graceful. She's very sweet. She's not aggressive or even assertive like her other sisters. That could be a bad thing. Could be a good thing. It's probably a bad thing. She's never fought for notice. She was everyone's favorite. She's charming. She's pretty. People like her. That's important. But honestly, history gets her temperament wrong most of the time. What do you mean? Well, you know, everyone's like, she's a harridan. She's bossing everyone around. Oh. She's this and that. And honestly, she's really not that person. Mm-mm. So, despite the deficiencies, the paperwork went forward. You have to seize the moment. You cannot let this prize go to Savoy or some other freaking house. you got to yeah. eyes on the prize. So Marie Antonia of Austria, age 13, was betrothed to Louis Auguste, the grandson of the King of France, Louis the Fifteenth. So many Louis. Every last one I of know. them. We thought all the Marias were bad, so let's start this convention now. Okay, so when we refer to Louis the Fifteenth, he could be Grandpa King. Got it. Disrespectful, but I don't think he would care. No. And maybe Marie Antoinette's husband, since we feel so close to him now, mm-hmm. after all this research, he could just be he could just be Louis. Okay. And then when they when the sons arrive, spoiler alert, we'll find a way to distinguish her two sons, both Louis people. Not a problem. We've got this. We've got it. So now the pressure's on. How to turn this nice enough but unpromising teenager into a future queen of France. I always think of this in my head as like that montage in Princess Diaries when the queen looks at Mia and she's just a mess. (laughs) She's like, what are we going to do? And it's just Anne Hathaway walking back and forth as, you know, as things, she gets her posture right and she gets her thing. But Maria Antonia needed a lot of work. She needed braces, first off. They subjected her to this device called a pelican. I have to imagine it's sort of like an Invisalign. Do you know what I'm saying? It's, sort, it's But made of wires and yeah. wood and hardware. And, and it's actually, um, if your kid has ever had a palate expander, they put it in their mouth, and every day you kind of have to turn the key, and and it sounds really bad, and they, they still do it today. My kid had it. She didn't. She After the first day, she was like, ah, oh, it's no big deal. But it kind of... Every day you have to tighten things to make everything go where they need to go. That was that's to get braces now. But back then that was the braces. And the fact that it worked so quickly. Three months. <laughs> three months. Ah, uh, yikes. That seemed violent. <laughs> but you know what cracks me up about this? France expressed their concerns that Antoine's teeth were not straight. Really? Have you seen the future husband? That's what I'm saying. I no, no, that doesn't matter. I guess. You want your queen to be perfect. They also hired some tutors to uh, teach her proper French, not that garbled mishmash she'd grown up with. Uh, When the French found out, though, that actors had been hired, they popped a gasket. 
But it was brilliant. Who talks for a living but actors? But no. But so Austria was surprised. Like, their hands up, whoa, okay, whoa, you know, retooled. And they hired a priest. Crisis averted. But (laughs) I think that explains to you the difference between the two countries. In Austria, we use the experts that talk for a living. Mm -hmm. And in France, they're more concerned about their lack of social rank, these tutors. (laughs) Oh, okay. Uh, She also had a hairline that was uneven. What? I know, we think of Marie Antoinette with the big hair. Well, they had to bring in the hairdressers from France to style her hair to sort of uh, hide her high forehead. You know, things are things are important in different eras. I can honestly tell you I have never once regarded someone's forehead with the possible exception of what? Morticia Adams? Who's the one that has oh, the... Oh, the widow's peak? Yeah. Maybe if anybody has a widow's peak, I noticed that, but yeah. otherwise I don't. I've covered mine with bangs since, I don't know, I just don't like my forehead. I might have to go look at my forehead because I don't you think have a I've very nice forehead. ever regarded it in my life. No, like, it's not high. It's never occurred to me that it was a <laughs> matter of focusing. So I guess that's what I'll be doing. Let's see, how would you look with bangs? My hair is so mermaidy and curly that if I cut bangs in my hair, the second there'd be like some furs bush. I have Helena Bonham Carter hair. I have told you that many times. <laughs> Mine is curly too. I actually have to straighten my bangs every day. It'd look fabulous, Thank but BZ just, just does not have that inclination. <laughs> I gotta let the weight of gravity take care of the hair. That's all I gotta say about that. Um, speaking of. Her appearance, uh, her clothes, her accessories, everything were to be made in France and paid for by Austria. Poor Mama. <laughs> I think it ran to quite a few uh, ducats, as they say. Mama repeatedly wrote to King Louis, Grandpa King, begging indulgence for her youth. That, you know, please forgive her. She is so young. Please be kind, my brother. All monarchs were brothers until it came to blows, but I suppose brothers fight too. But yeah, over and over she used to mention that, and it made me think, okay, she's super insecure about the preparation that she's able to put on this girl before she goes, which is inadequate. And I'm going to guess that that Marie Antoinette was thinking, okay, I'm being Eliza Doodlittled here from my spoiled, wild, childish ways to this sophisticated future queen But mom's going, ooh, there's so many things that you need to fix. It's just not going to (laughs) happen. So the pasting together of Antoine's educational gaps was complete. Well, she's not going to set the world on fire, at least not yet, and certainly not with her intellectual gifts, but she's super charming. She knows how to fake it till you make it. Always a good skill when you take on a new role. We finished this transformation. The tutor said, there are other faces more beautiful, but I doubt you will find a more charming one. That's a kind of a stamp of approval, right? It's sort of faint praise, but... <laughs> so it is time for us to take a little break, and when we come back, we will see how little Antoine does as the Dauphine of France. The History Chicks are brought to you by Audible.com, the world's leading source for audiobooks with thousands of titles across all types of literature. Are you traveling this summer, headed to the beach, or just need some entertainment on your commute? Audible is offering you, our listeners, a free download to give you a chance to try out their service. To accompany this podcast, what could we recommend but Marie Antoinette, The Journey, by Antonia Fraser? It's the book that inspired Sofia Coppola to film her Marie Antoinette movie in 2006. You may already own that book. In that case, why don't you try Maria Therese, Child of Terror, The Fate of Marie Antoinette's Daughter by Susan Nagel. Don't wait. Not ton de pas. 
To receive your free audiobook download this minute, simply follow the Audible link on our website, thehistorychicks.com. And we are back. Little Antoine, the baby girl, although they're not the baby, of the family is about to become the Dauphine of France. First up, we have to get her married, but we're going to do it by proxy the first time. And why do we do that? So the bride could travel as a married woman of her new rank. So she's going to be traveling as a Dauphine of France. It's such a strange idea, but they took it very seriously. Her slightly older brother, Ferdinand, was her proxy husband. I'm talking... They had a church wedding. He stood beside her. There was a priest, a reception, and then a dinner for 1,500 people, followed by dancing two days of festivities, as if it were a real wedding, of course. And I believe they did perform that lovely ritual where the newlyweds are, quote, put to bed in front of a room full of eyeballs. But this night was, of course, shenanigan-free. Now, so many of little Antoine's nights were to be shenanigan-free, but more on that later. (laughs) Suffice to say, that now, from now, she was Marie Antoinette, Dauphine of France. So as soon as she gets married, proxy married, she's going to need to set off to France. To get one teenage girl to France, that's 53 carriages, hundreds of horses stationed along the way, 117 footmen, and horses need to eat. People need to eat. People need to pee. There's no Howard Johnson. No. In fact, I don't even think there's any Howard Johnsons anymore here. I don't think so. Oh, it's been a very long time. I think there's like one left or two total. Well, there weren't any Howard Johnsons. Let's just put it that way. We think uh, of we think of her getting put into the carriage and being sent off to France. But it, this is a long journey. It's two and a half weeks of her sitting trapped in that carriage. It's more like a victory tour because yeah. she's taken to see... Honestly, sort of obscure relatives. Mm-hmm. She cruises through Lorraine. Goodbye, Lorraine. I am one of you also. You know, <laughs> love XOXO, that kind of thing. Um, fatiguing. Where's everyone sleeping? I just, the logistics of that whole trip seem amazing to me. Can you imagine? I have a hard enough time sitting in a car for a day. She's sitting in a carriage for all this time. For two weeks. And they have really stiff suspension, so it's almost like riding. Has it, have you ever ridden in a Jeep? Yes. Like an old Jeep. Yeah. Where by the end, your whole, like, where your neck meets the back of your spine is like, ay, 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 and you're exhausted. So the handover, which you will see depicted pretty accurately in Sofia Coppola's 2006 movie, Marie Antoinette, starring a fabulously attractive Kirsten Dunst. I am with Yeah. Um, so there is a tent erected right on the border between right. France and Austria, more like a velvet pavilion. Yeah, it's a pavilion, yeah. and it's on an island in the middle of the Rhine. It's got chandeliers and tapestries that someone had to run around to the local nobility and badger them to give decorations for this, like, to loan them. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, there's a red table in the center to mark the boundary. She goes in on the Austrian side and says goodbye to everyone she's traveled with over these two mm-hmm. and a half weeks. She says goodbye to all the familiar. Even her dog, Mops, can't come in. That's really sad. That's heartbreaking. In the movie, of course, it's heartbreaking too, but it really did happen. She is a child, after all. Think about this. I know. She's 14 years old, attached to things and people, and her future is uncertain, as far as she's concerned. And she's got to have to say goodbye to anything she knows. And that scene where she is stripped of all her Austrian clothing, all replaced by French clothes, 
true. Although we think, oh my gosh, how mortifying to be naked in front of all these people. But at the time, it wasn't. That's how she was raised. Well, the expectations of privacy in the 18th century were not nearly what they are today. Mm -hmm. People would flat out pee in a line together while chatting. It's (laughs) not even like... um, I think men still do that. Oh, well, that's true. (laughs) Well, um, she had, uh, like Susan said, spent her whole life being dressed and undressed like a little doll by people, and there's no men in here, after all. It's not a thing. It's just the ladies, like usual. And I guarantee you that Marie Antoinette was more upset about that dog than she ever was about being fully naked in a tent. Well, sure. I I don't know if this is true, but I've read it in a couple different sources, but as this happened, as she's finally dressed in her French garments and exits the pavilion on the French side, there, the, it had been sunshiny, and the sunshine disappeared, and there's thunder off in the distance, which I'm going to hold on to that as being true because it's such a dramatic... That's another thing, like, Papa gazed into her eyes yeah, as if he knew about her fate. It's one of those retro-fitted... Yeah. When we put the story in our heads, I that's what I have, thunder, lightning. <laughs> so after all this, she walked out of the pavilion on the French side, and all but one of those 53 carriages turned right around and went back to Austria again. Most of those, this makes me laugh, the guy who'd arranged all this and basically fronted the money planned to sell them the second he got back, like like wearing a dress out to a party and returning it. He was fully going to get all the money back out of this situation. Oh, sure. But the last one, her own carriage, this beautifully upholstered, light blue, velvet, gilded, these trembling feathers that I read were made of wire. Seems interesting when you have just feathers available. Don't know. Uh, she joined the cortege of French travelers who'd come to meet her on her new home soil. The only other Austrian who continued with her was Ambassador Mercy, because authorized. Yeah, he's the ambassador. ambassador. He goes back and forth. Yeah, that's his thing. So the meeting between Louis and Marie Antoinette, Louis XVI, you know, her husband, technically already. Yeah, technically. He is her husband, even though all they've seen of each other is small portraits. That were, at least in his regard, Really touched up, photoshopped oh, situation. Yeah. <laughs> so they held this supremely awkward meeting in the forest outside of Versailles where only, you know, 50 people would see instead of hundreds. Oof. Um, Louis was sort of fat and dumpy. He was uncomfortable in his outfit, uncomfortable in his skin, supremely shy. He had two handsome Ur brothers. One was extremely handsome and personable, but of course, that's not the one you get. Sorry. No. He's a younger son. Uh, she got the introverted and awkward bookish one. All he had written in his journal that day was meeting the Dauphine. That's it. Not like, oh, she's here. I can't wait. I'm nervous. Whatever. That's we it. don't know his feelings on this subject at <laughs> all, if he even had any. But the thing is, he had been brought up to distrust Austrians, to think they're manipulative and fickle, to think they were the enemy, which of course they had been until very recently. His advisors gave him a special warning about his new wife, the dangers of pretty women bending hapless nerds to their will was not a concept initiated by the movie Money Can't Buy Me Love. No, it was not. <laughs> Weirdly cast Patrick Dempsey as the nerd, by the way. Yeah. Are, do you remember that movie? Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, or the nerd. I don't think it was weirdly cast at the time. Really? Yeah. Okay. I mean, it kind of had a nerd quality. Well, this nerd spent all his telescope money to get this popular girl out of a jam, hijinks ensue. Yeah. But <laughs> it was the same situation. He had all these prejudices against her from the outset. His guard was up. And if Charlotte had been the sister who had come, he might have been wise to get those defenses because she 
was a strong personality, but Marie Antoinette, probably the only thing in her head was a big old sigh of disappointment. You know, it could have been worse. I want to just tell you that Grandpa King could well have married her himself. Oh, that's true. He had a mistress, but no wife. In fact, uh, Marie Antoinette's sister Elizabeth, the beautiful one, who was so scarred by smallpox before that event, was once considered as a wife for Grandpa King not that long ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so consider yourself lucky, Marie Antoinette, that the stranger you've been sent to marry was only a year older than you are. He was 15. She was 14. So they were officially married in France the very next day, this time with her actual husband and not her brother. And the putting to bed of the newlyweds happened this time with some expectations of happenings. You know, see you tomorrow, grandson. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. It would be the cementing of the alliance. Only there was no cement to be had. (laughs) Yeah, nothing happened. Not that night. Not the next night. Not, in fact, for seven years. That's troublesome. If you're wanting some errors for your country, there are a couple of theories about why this might have been. One of them is that he had a physical deformity or a physical affliction that made it very painful for him to... I'm so. I'm trying to be so delicate. He could not use his wedding tackle. <laughs> is that delicate enough? That's, to- that's perfect. Uh, that was one of the theories. Another theory is they were both so young that they never really got the details of how things were supposed to work out, so it didn't happen. Um, I, it amazes me how much study of the love life or the reproductive life of <laughs> Marie Antoinette and Louis is is done. I mean, there's a lot out there about it. Yeah, most think it was directly related to his personality. He's shy. He's timid with other people. Um, Not decisive. This is not a go-getter. He had constantly been compared to his, quote, superior older brother, another Louis, of course, who had died at the age of nine and ruined the freaking Louis curve for everyone by his bewildering brilliance and awesomeness. You know, easy when someone leaves to, like, give them a pedestal. Poor old thing. So Marie Antoinette's husband had been a backup heir. And, you know, Grandpa's quite a lot to live up to. Ladies' man, charming, firm, everyone's afraid of him, such a strong personality. And I think he just wilted under the pressure, pun intended. Yeah. And also, he's only... 2,500 nights? I mean, (laughs) that's a long time. Well, he's only 15. Yeah. And he has to leave his room. Now, everyone knows his business and what he's headed to try to do. You know, there's servants there you now have to get rid of some way. He's so shy. And what is, who does he even ask? There's no one to ask. This is not a comfortable, lovely place. Anytime you ask something, everyone's going to know you asked it. Right. My feeling is that the details of it were not explained to either one of them, and they couldn't figure it out. Because I think they went through some of the actions, but it just never, never actually Duck. <laughs> well, Marie Antoinette knew what, at least in general, produced airs, but she, alone among all her sisters, actually listened to Mama's scolding to always be led by your husband. A principle she didn't always follow herself, by the way, Mama, I'm talking to you. So here she is, you know, I'm waiting to submit to your will, you know, as ordered. It was a combination destined for failure. So her mother back in Austria wrote her letter after letter, blaming her for this whole thing. At this point, mom's going, hey, look, until that marriage is consummated, they can kick you out. You are not, this is, you're not official until that's done. We need you to be official. You need to be official. Get it done, girl. And at Versailles, that open palace where every reasonably dressed subject could visit any public area of the palace, the fishwives 
would yell at her in the hallway. When are you going to produce an heir for our country? It's not her fault. What a horrible situation to be in. <laughs> and poor Ambassador Merci is a grown man caught in the position of having to tell her, you know, madame, you really need to work on <clears throat> encouraging your husband. Awkward. Oh, my God. Awkward. I, I wonder if it, it had been, I mean, this is all speculative, if it had been Charlotte, if she would have taken, taken control. What said that curtain was drawn around the bed and no one's, you know, watching for real, you know, listen. This needs to happen like this. I just, I have to say, oh, would history have been different? I don't know. Yeah, I think she was more, a little bit more like her mom. She was a lot mm-hmm. like her mom. That's why they always butted heads every yeah. five seconds. <laughs> That's a traditional sign that your child is just like you when you fight with them all the time. So since there was no queen in France and had not been one for some time, Grandpa King had no wife. Both of Louis' parents were dead. There's a whole missing generation there. So the second Marie Antoinette was married, Marie Antoinette became the highest-ranking woman in France at 14. And no one could speak to her unless she spoke to them first. And Versailles had so many rules. Once upon a time, it had been nothing more than a royal hunting lodge, useful for its intended purpose, of course, but a welcome side effect of the size and the 20-mile distance from Paris was that it effectively limited access to the king. Now, the Sun King, this is Louis XIV, another Louis, there's so many Louis, about a hundred years before our story opens here, had turned Versailles into its larger, more opulent self, but also into a bastion of formality. He's a smart guy. There's a little strategy here, this Sun King, figuring, hey, if I can get the nobility to come to blows among themselves about who can hold my candle or who is authorized to hand me my underwear or whatever, well then... They won't have time or inclination to fight over important things like, say, land or my crown. Super smart. Worked like a charm. Make everyone orbit around the king. It it worked great, at least for him. For him, I was going to say. For Marie, it was a little bit different because now they're orbiting around her with the same set of rules. For instance, when she got dressed, she had to stand there and the highest ranking woman in the room was allowed to get her garments on her, but if another higher-ranking one came into the room, things would stop until the women could switch positions. You know, we're all ready to go. We've got the chemise in my mm. hand. Oh, somebody came in. Whoops. Curtsies, curtsies. Hello, everybody, with the proper level of curtsy to the person that just came in. Then you hand over the royal chemise. You remove your gloves. You turn to the dauphin. Twice this played out on one mm-hmm. notable occasion, and in the freezing cold, Marie Antoinette's just standing there, super naked, and said out loud, This is ridiculous. <laughs> and I hate to refer to the Sophia Coppola movie again, but you'll see this scene played out very well on screen. That is not a made-up scenario that's taken from the pages of life. After the dressing ceremony where she, uh, that was like, you know, nobility, ladies with rights of entry, etc., but she went out into a public area, remember, all respectively dressed citizens, could regard you in a public area. So she put on her rouge in front of everybody, got her hair dressed in front of everybody. Um, the rouge. I know. I was gonna, She went from Austria where it was the, the not, not at all made up like this to what we think of as Versailles with the red circles on their cheeks. It's more like just they drew them I, on like a China doll. <laughs> circles of red. Yeah, you know, rouge was so important in France that if you were a poor person and you couldn't afford rouge, you would use red wine. Like, it's like Benetent. Have you ever seen Benetent? 
I have no idea what that is. It's like a lip stain. Oh. And after a while, you don't have to put it on anymore for a while because it gets in and oh. stains your lips. It's like red wine, basically. Or Remember when we talked about Clara Bow used? Yeah, the, the, the flat wallpaper. Lick her finger, rub it on her lips, and then kiss the wallpaper. Yeah. Girl gotta have lipstick and stuff. Oh, well. Another thing she hated that was super formal was that the royal family ate in public. Like animals at a zoo, people could come by... So they're all standing around for the night's entertainment, which is to watch the two of them eat their dinner or their whatever meal it was. And the table is full of all this beautiful food. And they're just watching. Oh, what's she going to eat? How's she going to eat it? I, all those eyes? You're like an animal in a zoo. Marie Antoinette could not bear it. She didn't like it. She never liked it. In fact, not too far into this thing, she would just drink champagne, maybe eat a dessert, otherwise refuse to do it, and she would eat in private for real. She'd sit there, and you know, her refusal was seen as haughty, and it was like a mark, a black mark against yeah. her, kind of. Like, we came here for this entertainment, and you're just sitting there. You're denying us. Like, when you go to the zoo and all the lions are asleep, it's kind of it's, disappointing. Yeah, that's true. So, Marie Antoinette was raised in a court that was, I want to say on the surface anyway, more what? What am I going to say? Moral? I guess. Her father was a notorious playboy, but of course the children, at least the actual child age children, like Antoine wouldn't have known about the specifics of all of that. So this society at Versailles was a bit like taking a small town girl from Squirrel Hollow, Arkansas, and dropping her in the middle of Vegas. Everything was kind of shocking. She was pretty naive. She had a year and a half to prep herself for this, and there's no way. I mean, it would take years to learn all those rules and all the nuances and all the social mores and of, of the time. It's just too much. Even the third grade social politics that uh, seemed to reign all over the place. Louis had some aunts who had never married, or if you're Susan, some aunts who had never married. Uh, they never left. Three of them. And they immediately set about in their mischievous ways because they had not a thing else to do, manipulating little Marie Antoinette into dissing Grandpa King's mistress, which you can probably see was not such a good plan. No, and she fell for it at first because why wouldn't she trust her, her new aunts? If he's close enough to this woman, the Comtesse du Barry, to find some count willing to marry her and then skedaddle so she can have a title, <laughs> since she was once Jean Becou, commonest of the common, I'd say even maybe peasant level, mm-hmm. well, he has some effort invested here, so to insult her is to really to insult the king. It actually became a political issue, if you can believe it or not. Marie Antoinette was more or less forced by her country's ambassador to open conversation with this Madame du Barry to avoid an international incident. That's just another strike against her because she's she's awkward and all of her awkwardness is just going, it's just building a case for her as being aloof and, off, you know, not what she really was, but she just didn't know what to do. How Marie finally gave in to this and got around it is she was in a very crowded room. Uh, Madame du Barry came in. She said, Simply, there are a lot of people at Versailles today. And that was it. Uh, it's really kind of too bad because, you know, of all people, the Comtesse could have really helped with that bedroom thing. <laughs> it's unfortunate she didn't take advantage of the experts. Hello, Austria. There's an expert right ahead That's of you. That's right. Right here. Yeah. Right at your disposal. So the ants realized, I think, at that point that their game was up and their powers had evaporated. Bubble, blah, bubble, blah, blah, toil blah. and trouble. Then they moved on to something else. Yeah, the gambling and the drinking in this place was epic level. The young people especially were very fond of these pursuits. Why not? None of them had any responsibilities. Not yet. So it was like 
oh, what's that called in college? Freshman year? <laughs> rush week. week. Oh. It was like rush week at college. You know, she's like, oh, here I am. Look at all this social activity going on. Look at all the partying I can do. And she was of that age that that would be very appealing. She was definitely living in a material world. <laughs> Totally. Um, she gambled. She partied. This is where she got that fashion that we think of Marie Antoinette. Her hair got higher and higher. It was festooned with ribbons and feathers. At one time, a boat. It got up to four feet high. How did they do that? There was a metal cage inside the hair that they wrapped it around. She had her hairdresser. Leonard. Leonard, who was fabulous, and he would come in only on Sundays because he was so important and so busy, and he would do her hair. But he would put the, put the cage on and just Edward scissor hands her and get all these things going and step back and go, Yay, me! Look at this. And there's oils in there that's powdered to within an inch of its life. There were probably mice in there. I know. There's lice and all kinds of things growing up. I just love fashion. Yeah. She, um, her clothes at this point were getting blingier and blingier. She had a clothing allowance, which in today's money ran about $1.2 a year. But, you know, she's supporting French industry. <laughs> yeah. French industry is paying, and all the people are paying for that. You know, taxes is paying her hairdresser. Yep. That's, that's what you get when you got a monarch. I don't know. Who's paying for Kate Middleton's hairdresser? I mean, not us. We're American citizens, but I'm just saying. Oh. Who is paying for Kate yeah, Middleton's hairdresser? Yeah, she looks really good. Both of those babies, when she came out of the hospital, didn't she look beautiful? You know, I want to say, back in, right before I was born, I think the hospitals used to offer, because before Papa was allowed in the room, mm -hmm. I seriously think it was a common perk to have a hairdresser on staff to fix you back up before your husband saw you. I'm not even joking. I would believe that. And so... I never heard the story. I have to ask my mom. Kate Middleton keeps the hope alive. <laughs> because I would say if that service were still available, there wouldn't be this great gap between us all. That's all I'm saying. We oughtn't to have gotten rid of that tradition, perhaps. So her party years were pretty wild, but they were also kind of isolated. It's just Versailles. It's just, you know, the court. It's just the people there. She doesn't see what's going on in the world around her. Unlike in Vienna, when she was born, she talked to common, you know, the common people were her people. Here, not so much. So she is not entirely aware of what's going on in France at the time and there's crop failures and they're leading to financial ruin and people are just starting to get taxed heavily which is making the people very upset with the noble classes. So that's kind of simmering about right now while Marie is off partying. Now Marie Antoinette became the queen quite early. She was only 19 when Grandpa King died after a bout with smallpox. And, of course, husband Louis was immediately the king, and he and Marie Antoinette fell to their knees and said, God help us, we are too young to reign. Oh, Louis and Marie, you're so very right. Let's leave them here, at the moment of both their greatest triumph and their greatest confusion, until part two, in which we discuss Let Them Eat Cake, did she or didn't she, Axel von Fersen, did she or didn't she, and the end game, the story of the French Revolution. Stay tuned, and we'll be back soon. We would love to say thank you to the kind people of National Geographic for providing us a way to say thank you to you, our listeners, at least two of you, with this amazingly funny book called Bad Days in History, a gleefully grim chronicle of misfortune, mayhem, and misery for every day of the year by Michael Farquhar. Uh, it has nothing officially to do with Marie Antoinette except... 
she did have a few bad days. One in particular was pretty awful. This is how you're going to do it. You're going to go to our website. We're going to leave the comments open for two weeks after posting this episode. And we will do a random drawing for two of you to win this book, which is a, it's a good book to have. So thank you for listening. And good luck. Bye. Find us in all the usual places at The History Chicks. And a new usual place called Clamor. It's a new app, and we post original content on it almost every day. I mean, but you would be amazed at what we can fit into 18 seconds. It's like Vine, but for audio. Check it out. We'd love it if you'd take this opportunity to spread some propaganda for us by telling a few friends about the podcast. Or follow the fashion and leave a review for us on iTunes. Or get Meryl Streep to listen to the show. Pick one or surprise us with all three.